Namotasa Bhagavato Harahato Sama Samputasa Namotasa Bhagavato Harahato Sama Samputasa Namotasa Bhagavato Harahato Sama Samputasa Homage to the Buddha, the blessed noble, and fully self-enlightened one. So uh, this evening, I want to go just a little bit more in detail as to this particular technique. <clears throat> so this morning, we are uh, really trying to understand what the Buddha meant by right awareness in this process of um, liberation. And uh, we we went through his life, uh, spe specifically those four sections where, as a young person, he enjoys the ordinary sensual pleasures of the world but finds them empty, not leading anywhere, and he's still very much concerned with sickness, old age, and death. And then he tries these absorptions these um, blissed out states he finds them wanting they're beautiful in themselves and it's part of our it, he, he made it part of our practice didn't he? it was unwholesome for us so it was good to do it but it had this shortcoming that it didn't really tackle the fundamental problem of suffering and then he tried the business of self mortification and he only found that painful didn't get him anywhere at all. He had no, doesn't have a good word for it at all. These, um, when we are practicing, just as an aside to one of the questions, remember that we're not trying to get rid of the joys and pleasures of life. We're just trying to find a different relationship to it. So when the Buddha's eating, he does, he knows that it's well-cooked food and tasty. He knew the last meal was off. <laughs> he, was <gonna laughs> uh, he probably had eaten too much of it. And it said he died of that meal. So he knew it was off. He told Chunda, the guy who made it for him, to bury the rest of it. <laughs> Somehow he, he wasn't quick enough to stop himself eating it. So we're not... Con we're not his teaching is not about getting rid of the pleasures and joys of life. It's about finding a different relationship. Not seeing them as sources of complete, continual, eternal contentment. They just don't deliver. See? And the fourth phase was when he had this insight about a different way of approaching suffering, which was to actually investigate the suffering. Stop trying to run away from it, find somewhere else to live, because he always seemed to carry his suffering with him, uh, but to actually investigate the cause of suffering. Huh? And that's when he became liberated from it. And what he meant by this awareness in terms of our vipassana practice was to find this observation post within us, this place from which we could observe whatever was coming into our vision, our consciousness. So 
when we sit here and we put our attention on the breath just to collect ourselves we're aware of the breath see the sensations caused by the breath when some feelings come in the body and draw our attention we go to them we feel them and you couldn't do that if you were already involved in caught up in the feeling itself just as when we get angry for instance slam the door see we lose that objectivity and you can't be thinking about it because if you think about it then in a sense you're lost in conceptual thinking about what it is you're experiencing so that's once removed it might it might be pleasing to sit there and wonder you know why we're suffering something or, or why we're being happy uh, but that wondering mind that thinking mind is just another place that we hide in another place that we can uh, escape to see so this uh, awareness that he's talking about in the sitting meditation is a place which is right there within the body and mind but somehow separate from it it must be separate from it because it can look at it it can feel it it can experience it you've all been doing that all day so therefore there's something about this awareness which doesn't belong there that's the point and our search in a way is to find out what the quality of this awareness is what is it what is this ability I have to be conscious of things to be aware of things and that brings in another factor this idea of curiosity now although we separate the two sati panya awareness and intuition intuitive intelligence they're both the same thing so that's why we practice this abiding in the present moment this inhabiting the present moment in a very open way completely receptive teaching ourselves to be completely passive see no matter what's coming into our awareness we just let it come and let it pass away see even if it takes a whole day it doesn't really matter it will pass and that's practicing these this ability just to receive you see without questioning without trying to do anything right? and once that's established maintaining that state of the objective observing objective feeling objective experiencing we turn on this curiosity curiosity I like to tell the the tale when I was once in Penang and somebody offered a, a hut well it was a house really up in a plantation and uh, in the evening one evening I set this table out and sat on top of this table and put a net up a mosquito net and a great big mug of coffee I was going to watch the sunset it got darker and darker and it suddenly realized that I was facing east <laughs> yeah, it was disappointment <laughs> anyway every evening these two dogs would meet and they were great friends they chase each other round and round this hut that I was living in well this this bungalow I was living in and on that very evening I was sat there and one of the dogs arrived and began to whine because his friend hadn't turned up and he hadn't noticed me 
and uh, or he, perhaps he had or but he, he just wasn't concerned about that he's concerned about where his friend was now when his friend turned up uh, they greeted each other and then as he turned round he saw this table with a, a net and somebody in it and he looked and he went <laughs> see dog dogs have Buddha nature they have this intelligence they have this curiosity and that really struck me because it's the same it's the same consciousness that we have it's that same ability to be aware and to question I don't know whether the dog became fully liberated on that <laughs> occasion but uh, definitely I, I thought to myself well you see even dogs, even dogs have it. And they are, they are free from this conceptual thinking. Now, does that mean that uh, all our education has been to waste? No, far from it, because our education has increased the ability to understand. That's the point. See? This intelligence we have comes in, as it were, blind. And the education that we have has increased our ability to understand, to think, see? So remember, we're not trying to get rid of anything. The Buddha was accused of annihilation, annihilation theory. Everything was destroyed. He says, no. So the only thing that is annihilated is greed, hatred, and delusion. So remember that once he became liberated, he spent the whole night, uh, the first watch of the night, trying to understanding the process whereby suffering is caused. The second watch of the night, how it was undone. And the third watch of the night, both ways, just in case he got it wrong. See? And that's what we call de dependence origination. That's the psychology he teaches. Now, he couldn't have done that without thought. See? And one of the things that um, happens to us in meditation occasionally is as we're looking, as we're observing, something will pop into the mind. It might just say impermanence or... God, that's suffering, that's desire. It'll just, as it were, pop out. This is this intelligence telling itself what it knows. We don't know what we know until it manifests. It has to manifest as a word, or as a piece of art, or as an action. It has to come out somewhere, and then we know we know it. I'm sure you've all had this amazing experience of saying something enormously wise to your great surprise. See, you didn't know you knew it. And then suddenly you are making these amazing statements. And the opposite. <laughs> which, is, <laughs> which is the measure of our delusion. Fine. It's the way we are. So it's not that we are in our meditation trying to get rid of thought. We're just trying to stop it for a while. Right? And you might, find, you might think to yourself, well, why doesn't it stop? Why, I have, why do I have so much difficulty in just stopping this thinking mind? Well, just consider, from the moment you wake up to the moment you fall asleep, does it ever stop? Yeah. <laughs> the mind's always thinking, yeah? and it's usually thinking about me. Huh? Why am I, why do they think me and I should, I, why not myself and they should, I, 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 it goes on and on and on, huh? just thinking about ourselves. So there's never a point in the day where the mind actually stops unless you purposefully do so and then it would only stop for a short while so 
here we are coming to a meditation retreat thinking that well we'll just sit for a minute and it'll just stop <laughs> now uh, one of the reasons that we practice this noting technique is to at least bring that intellect that thinking mind to a simple concrete place right and in that way we can as it were contain its power and draw that energy from it just directly into the looking uh, now we'll come to that in a minute so <clears throat> uh, having having understood that business of right awareness intuitive awareness see, sometimes called intuitive awareness uh, there are many techniques to establish that see? in the scriptures the, the, there isn't a specific technique the Buddha just guides he says uh, he, he observes the breath knowing it to be either short or long heavy or coarse in other words when you first sit you're just contacting the breath as a feeling and then you train upon it calming the body calming the mind see? and then you begin to see its um, impermanence of the, of the three that one is the simplest to see that it's impermanent and when there is just enough um, awareness just enough inquiry curiosity insight arises okay? that's all it is and the breath is that part that we use to develop that quality now there are many vipassana techniques if you've read um, Jack Confield's old book Living Buddhist Masters I think there's only one alive now <laughs> but I think they've renamed it <laughs> <laughs> and you'll see there are about 12 in there if I remember rightly all of whom have quite distinct different ways of approaching uh, how to develop this right awareness and some of you will have uh, experienced other techniques than this uh, some of you will have tried for instance the Ubakin technique uh, taught by Goenkaji or that place in Wiltshire and they centre really their practice because I did it for a while their practice centres entirely on this anicca, this, this impermanence yeah? that's enough see it's enough because when you see impermanence you see that holding on to anything is suffering so you see the cause of suffering when you see impermanence you realize that nothing remains so it can't be self it can't be substantial so impermanence in the Buddha's understanding is a gateway into these other two qualities these other two factors of uh, characteristics of existence yeah, it's a gateway and uh, you'll find that various techniques um, have a particular angle one that I practiced in um, Thailand in the Bay of Bangkok there that Bay I forget what it's called and uh, the teacher had died and her teaching was entirely centered on Dukkha I'd never come across this before suffering uh, and I was instructed the instruction is very simple to remain in the sitting posture until it hurt till it really hurt I mean till it really really hurt and then you could move 
either to another posture or standing posture and then off he went again until it hurt so it really really hurt see and the idea was that you got into this dreadful state of pain seeing your reaction to it hmm? constantly trying to let go of your negativity towards it trying to find a peacefulness with it you see until it became unbearable then as you moved you noted you, you saw that as the body became comfortable the mind became comfortable okay? so just in that process of seeing pain and the rejection of pain the resistance to pain getting to a point where you can't bear see which is only a limit within our ability hmm? and then using that movement to see how the body and mind relate and how it's all manufactured see? it's all two processes and these were the directions I had the only time we weren't supposed to follow them was when we were eating which makes a bit of sense <laughs> so all these techniques have that um, purpose to establish a certain level a certain type of awareness right awareness to observe these three characteristics and they've got their checks and balances so there's always a downside to these techniques and always a plus you see and it's up to us to be able to know when we're going off piste and when we're directly on it now um, one thing that you have to uh, give up if you want to do vipassana in its pure sense is just give up any idea of it doing some good psychologically see because if you set yourself a task well I'm going to sit here now and I'm going to get over my depression I'm going to get over my anxiety I'm going to get over this get over that you see? your whole practice is skewed onto observing this quality and if you're sat there and it doesn't come up you're disappointed you want to work with this depression that's not coming in fact you feel happy and you can't, can't be bothered with happiness anymore you go <laughs> I want to be depressed so I can really understand my depression so the whole the whole practice becomes skewed towards this idea that you know we're going to do something about our psychology it's not about uh, uh, trying to get rid of any physical problems we have see? You know, if you have a um, some sort of backache or, or or something like that and you're trying to trying to use the posture and everything to cure it because you've heard that sometimes physical problems disappear with meditation then your whole effort is just trying to get rid of this problem see and you miss the point you miss the point now if you if you come off that and you practice the vipassana its pure sense then of course the site the, the therapy takes care of itself the body takes care of itself the body uh, won't won't heal itself if it can't do so and you need extra help to uh, to get it healed then obviously you go to a, to a therapist or a doctor or something but when it comes to um, centering your attention on that you see you're going to come off you're, you're, you're moving off the real purpose of our practice the purpose of our practice is to cut right under that stuff Right? to go right down to the foundations as to how this whole suffering and dissatisfaction arose in the first place okay? so um, it's not as though 
all these techniques that we have now, you know, therapeutic techniques, psychotherapy, all these other therapies are, are useless, far from it, see? Um, to use them in order to better our lives, that's not a problem. It's not, a, it's not, it's not against the Buddha's teaching, for say. I mean, when people fell sick, he, uh, he was lucky to have the chief doctor, the chief uh, person who looked after the king, who offered them free medical assistance, free medical care, can't remember his name at the moment. And <coughs> what happened was, this became so well known that people, people who were sick joined the order, especially to get free medicine. <laughs> so now when you join the order, you, have to, you can't join the order if you're sick. See, <laughs> it's against the rule to join the order if you're sick. See? I'm not talking about colds and flus, I mean some serious illness. So, um, putting all that aside, you see, right, and bringing ourselves just to the practice of just establishing this awareness and being able to investigate it from this position of the objective observer, see, and that takes a bit of faith, you see, uh, but hopefully as our practice deepens, we see that the mind heals itself, just like the body does, right, to the most part. So when you cut yourself, who heals it? I mean, you, we keep it antiseptic and all that, but the body does it. You're not in there telling the cells where to go, urging them on. They just do it. So the mind, you see, you begin to realize that all these moods and emotions that we experience are just energy. They're just turbulence. They're just forms of energy. And if you just feel them, just let them express themselves, they exhaust themselves. But whenever they enter into this dream world, we grab them and we start, through our stories, to make them grow. And when we identify them, they become solid, they become me. See? So these are the sorts of things that we're looking at when we're practicing Vipassana. See? And as soon as, we, as soon as we begin to see how we cause ourselves suffering, then of course the effort is to stop that. And as you stop it, everything begins to cool down the mind begins to cool. So one of the descriptions of Nibbana is coolness, you know, like the fire goes out. So, <clears throat> our purpose then is to establish this right intuitive intelligence and um, allow this intuitive wisdom to do its work. Okay. Remember that there is a connection between thought and this intelligence. Remember, it's the intelligence itself that only knows what it knows through thought. It's a paradox. But when you want, but when you want to make deeper insights, you have to let go of thought. See? Uh, one of the examples that I usually pull out of history is Archimedes. You know, when he got into his bath. See? I mean, um, trying to find the weight or the volume, rather of an irregular shape. Remember he had to uh, prove that the crown the king had was, was gold, so he had to get the specific gravity. And to do that, if I remember rightly, you divide the weight into the volume or the other way around. See? <laughs> the weight was easy to get, but the volume was difficult. So as he's getting in, so he's, he's forgot all that now, he's, he's struggling with it and he's, he's, he's fed up, see? Then he thinks, hell, I'll have a bath. See? <laughs> so he's not thinking about it. As he gets into his bath, you see, he sees the water rising and, you know, 
the volume equals the amount of water displaced and all that and to us like what's so big about that I should do that every <laughs> like and it took it took this genius to actually work out that little way of getting a volume of an irregular shape see all that thought went into it and then he had to drop it all because it was all to do with you know measuring things and then as he's getting into the bath you see relaxed at ease I'm presuming is that <laughs> he sees the water rising dependent on the volume of his irregular body but boom he's made it you see Eureka I found it see that's how it works those of you who know about um, uh, Rinzai Zen the koan see the koan posits impossible well, posits paradoxes which you try and work out you see there's some truth in it somewhere what does it mean one hand clapping see so you're trying to work it out trying to work it out and then finally when you come to the end of what the intellect does you drop it but in that process there's been a honing of that intelligence and the insight comes see so always remember we're not trying to get rid of anything we're not trying to destroy anything except greed hatred and delusion Now, uh, the other thing I've written here is the practice. So remember that, especially those of you who've been practicing a long time, you get this sort of laziness about it. You know, it's easy to sit here, and you find yourself sitting here for three quarters of an hour, an hour, and it's easy, easy peasy. You know, and then you get up and you go and do some walking, but actually nothing's happened. And it's because we've fallen into that state of losing that sense of urgency that sense of really investigating things hmm? where you can just sit for an easy time uh, maybe some stuff comes up you get some things occasionally that interest you but generally speaking your mind's in this sort of flappy flattered, flaccid state where nothing's happening right? a sort of gentle awareness or you get so lazy that in fact the mind really starts wandering and you find yourself three quarters of an hour you know, uh, know, saving the world, or worse. <laughs> and so, uh, that effort to keep bringing the attention back into the present moment is absolutely paramount, absolutely paramount. As soon as you see the mind wandering, to come out to recognize the attitude which is uh, making it um, do that, and then to come back to the body. And it may be that as you come back to the breath, you can feel the attitude which is empowering it. You can feel the emotional state, maybe the anger or the joy or the excitement. So in which case you stay there. So you stay there, you don't go back to the breath. You stay there and as that begins to express itself as feeling, it's exhausting itself. Huh? And when it disappears, when it's gone, the thought stops. See? When you've done that a few times then you realize that the problem doesn't lie in the head, it lies in the heart lies in our emotional base so at the end of each sitting that's why it's so important to do this little reflection it doesn't have to be long just pick up on one or two things that's all I mean I've given a certain structure to it but it doesn't have to be that way it's just looking back and thinking well you know I could have put more effort into that you know why did I fall asleep you know <laughs> you know it's like you just just question yourself you see and if it was good you say yeah, yeah that's good you know I really put some effort in there and and, and the benefit was this, the benefit was this, you see. I was really very still on the breath. I got highly concentrated. I got right into that, to that feeling, you see, that sensation. But you congratulate yourself as well, eh? 
and then that resolution you see now uh, I know that path to hell is paved with good intentions but the idea is that you really empower resolution so for instance if you have been lazy about uh, dullness and lethargy and you've allowed yourself to just fall asleep unwittingly you know half consciously you might say then you make that determination right I know how overpowering that mental state is the next time I feel even a dodgy of it you see I'll get up I'll stand up because I know it's power yeah? so uh, that reflection after every sitting is uh, it's important see? doesn't have to be long just a little reflection and it's like you're telling yourself you're constantly urging yourself see constantly cajoling yourself encouraging yourself So, um, what are these techniques and why do we use them, you see? So, the Mahasi himself was quite a scholar. He was uh, famous at his time for his scholarship. So much so that when they had the 1956 Sixth Council, there's only been six great councils since the Buddha died, he was asked to be the questioner, the putchaka. So this was an honorary position but it meant that you know people recognized him as being a, a real scholar not just a scholar if it was just a scholar there were probably others who would have qualified it was the fact that he was also a meditation master meditation teacher and it was and uh, he was he was um, brought down to Bangkok just after independence 1948 by the Prime Minister and some others and very quickly he established uh, a name for himself and during the 50s he was traveling to um, Sri Lanka and all over the east and then he came here I think in the in the 70s something like that I think that was his first time the late 70s and uh, by which time this particular technique had really taken a hold at the same time that uh, the Ubakin technique so these two techniques coming out of Burma really became quite fashionable and uh, really showed you the state of play at that time when people, uh, monks, monastics, monks and nuns, uh, really weren't meditating. So this was really a, um, uh, you know, something that was really pushing the system again. So in that sense he was a, an incredible inspiration. Um, being a scholar you see, being a word person, um, he took from his teacher this idea of noting. And I was surprised to find that it's also used in certain forms of Soto Zen. And the idea was that you kept the intellect contained through these very simple words, but they were also pushing you towards the object. So if you think of a child, when they see something, they shout, don't they? Car, car, you know, bird, bird, they shout, you see, they're shouting. And that, and what they're doing is they're, they're actually making their attention stick onto the object. So the Mahasi talked about it as throwing a stone at a wall. So if you've got a bottle on a wall, you aim at it, you know, and the stone hopefully hits the bottle. So this word is something that you are using to get closer to the object. Now what we find uh, a great, uh, especially for those of you who are trying this for the first time, is that the word is so loud you can't see anything. It's just up in your face, yeah? Rising, falling, that's all you, that's all you can be aware of, this rising, falling, <laughs> rising, falling. 
what this is telling us is that this intuition, this intuitive intelligence is stuck right there in the intellect. So what we do is, we keep that rising and falling, but as it were, we sneak around the word. We look over it, or through it, or under it, use whatever works for you, and contact the feeling, you see. And then there's this, there's this um, experience where the word uh, becomes softer and begins to somehow recede. It feels as though it's coming from behind rather than leading you in front, see? And that shows us that this intelligence is just coming out of that confusion with the intellect. Yeah? And the more you do that, the more you'll find the word really helps you to keep your attention on the object. Now, one of the questions is, should we do it all the time, like a mantra? You should do it all the time. From the moment you wake up, get in the habit of doing the whole day, no matter what you're doing. But it shouldn't be like a mantra, see? <laughs> It should be really deliberate, right? So when you're saying rising, falling, it's a deliberate note concurrent with the action, right? Remember, if you say rising before the breath, you get the feeling you're controlling it. But if you're just feeling the breath and you're just using this word to push you into the breath, to get closer to those sensations, hmm, then, it, then that's the way it's supposed to work. When you're opening a door, you see, you stand in front of the door, see, standing. You see the intention, intending to open the door. These intentions, like intending to walk, intention to open the door, they're not sort of overpowering emotional states, right? They're just, <laughs> they're just a desire, intending to open the door, right? That's what you mean to do, that's all you're saying. But you're making it a conscious thing, intending to open the door. You're not just crash through it, okay? So you're intending to open the door. As your hand goes towards the door, you're feeling it. Your, 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 your attention is in your hand, right? The feeling of your hand and your arm stretching, moving, see? And then as you hold onto the, onto the uh, handle, there's that contact, see? So you're pressing, pressing. So first of all, there's the contact whereby you, you sense it to be metal. Even if you had your eyes closed, you'd pretty well guess it was metal, see? So it's actually getting down to that to that sort of feeling. And then as you're pushing it down, pushing, pushing, you're communicating with the spring. Right? You're not just sort of, you know, trying to break its back and just burst through the door. You're actually just feeling the pressure of the spring. Right? So that your effort and the spring's effort is exactly the same, except yours is a little bit stronger because you're pushing against it. <laughs> and then when you finally got it down to, uh, to its open state, then you push to open the door. Yeah, and then pushing, 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 see? releasing, releasing. So you're still there with the spring, see? Standing, standing, intending to walk. Walk through the door, huh? standing, intending to turn, right? So this should take you at least five minutes to get through the door. <laughs> now, you don't have to do it with every door. You never get here. But you can do it at least once or twice to get to that minutiae, to see how when you really slow things down, you see things very particularly, you really, really get down to how the mind, how the body's working. See? So the word that we're using should be deliberate, it should be concrete, right? We shouldn't be searching for words. If, if a word doesn't come up, uh, use something quite generic. Uh, use more the word which is expressing the process. So instead of feeling, feeling, in other words, pain, pain, 
you can use the word feeling to express what it is you're actually doing huh? and any word like that sensation if the word doesn't come up just just go for a genetic word like feeling but if a word does come up then just use it uh, one thing we discover is that language is very poor uh, when describing feelings emotions sensations yeah? they're very sort of general words And we shouldn't be looking, we shouldn't spend time thinking for the right word, the poetic word. I mean, that's, that's just silly. See? So it's really, <laughs> it's really just using very obvious words for very concrete things we're doing. So now, the retreat, especially of those who are staying for the week, see, it's the same every day. See? Every day, you get up, you meditate, you walk, you eat, you meditate, you sit, see? All the day. So eventually, there's only a set of words anyway. It's not as though you have to keep discovering what to call this, because it's usually always the same. Every day is the same. And that's purposeful, see? The purpose is to make some, something so, uh, uh, so repetitive, right? So repetitive that you can see the process, these mental, physical processes, over and over again. Yeah? And it's seeing them over and over and over again that eventually, you know, like it sort of is like Chinese torture, it drops. So it gets through to you eventually. <laughs> and there's a change of attitude. See? When there's a change of attitude, it's, it become, it's becoming systemic. It begins to express itself in the way we speak, in what we do, in our livelihood. See? So that, it's, not a, it's not good enough to do, say, the eating meditation once or twice. It's constant, constantly doing it, see? And the end of that process doesn't come until we're liberated from delusion. See? So, you know, think of it as a long-term practice. <laughs> we're, in for the, we're in for the duration. So, <clears throat> that business of noting, you see, is deliberate, it's to the point, and it's continuous. Continuous. Right? And like, uh, like was suggested, you see, it becomes a mantra if you don't watch it. So, rising, falling, see? The mind shoots off to Acapulco. So you wake up and the mind's going, rising, falling, rising. Because you've trained it, you see? Completely useless. Absolutely, completely useless. Uh, we just talked about intentions. So, intention in the Buddha psychology is where it all begins. It's, um, and I'll be going into this more deeply during the week. Intention is the beginning of an action. Okay? When you repeat the action, you're forming a habit. When you collect all your habits together, that's your personality. And, though, and your personality is driving you to your destiny. Right? When you come back on these habits and begin to sort them out as being wholesome or unwholesome, then your destiny changes. Okay? And it all begins with this intention. So what is an intention? An intention is just an idea, a thought, empowered with desire. That's all. Very simple. Hmm? And if you catch the intention, it's not done anything. It's the product of a habit. It's not actually producing an action. It's not producing a habit. It's just come up as an idea, laced with desire. And if you can stay with that, if you can catch it, you see, then you've got that moment, you see, you've got that release from it, 
and you can let it go, let it die away if you see it's not wholesome. And if it is wholesome, you can empower it if you want. It might be the wrong time to do it, it doesn't matter. The point is, it's that moment of discernment. So, throughout the day, you see, and I'll keep urging you to do this, just try, just keep stopping, keep stopping, keep stopping. Yeah? Stopping, noting the next, right, relaxing into the moment, noting the next intention, empowering it. Yeah? Constantly like that. And what you'll find is when you do that, is that you really do, do begin to slow down. Because this stopping just stops things from from, you know, snowballing stops things from growing bigger and bigger. Now, all these techniques can be taken into daily life. So, this business of stopping, you see, when you often we walk into a room and we walk into the atmosphere of the room and we're in conversation and we might be developing to our um, quite unwittingly some form of irritation with somebody. Yeah? And then when we walk out of the room, we carry that with us to the next person. See? But if you actually stop at the door just for a moment and recognize this little irritation you've picked up and just let it drop, you walk, you're walking liberated of it. See? So it's the same with excitement. So you're getting yourself all excited. See? And, then, and instead of exhausting yourself by the end of the day, you just stop, see? let it drop, and then re-establish calmness. You can't do that without stopping. You can't do that without creating a break. See? So this business of stopping and just turning inward and just seeing where we are, just letting it drop, you see? Even if it doesn't drop away, even if we've, if we've got ourselves truly excited or truly irritated, you see, at least now we're aware of it. So that when we walk into the next situation, perhaps we can just leave it there, we can park it. Parking an emotion, not the same as suppressing it. You know? Whenever you suppress something, you're always using some form of aversion, some form of fear, or some form of pleasure. See? The pleasure is when you direct your attention away from it to something delightful. But by parking it, you know it's there, but you're not paying attention to it. See? So you're not actually adding any further turbulence to the system. Yeah? So this business of stopping and noting the intention is something we have to get into the habit of. See? So the more you do it, the more you'll get that sense of presence, of being here. And finally, there's slowing down. So, as I think I mentioned it yesterday, uh, driving through a forest is different from walking through a forest. So, slow everything down, see? just take your time, get that feeling of having an eternity of time to do the simplest of things. Not that you have to take an eternity of time to do the simplest of things. It's just that sense of time, you see. Get rid of that something that has to be done. Hmm? When I was with uh, my teacher there, you see, <clears throat> he would uh, say, eating. I remember once a group of us were eating, you see. And we were taking up to an hour to eat this food. And he'd come towards the end of the meal and stand over us and say, slower. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> and he, that was his. He was constantly telling us to go slower. If you saw, if, even when you were going at, this, at, the, at the speed of a snail, there was this command to go slower. See? Keep going slow, keep going slow. And the, the thing is that if you can find times of the day when you can go slow, there's the walking meditation, there's the eating meditation, but there's other times too when you're not 
when there's not people around you waiting or something like that and just remind yourself go slow see? and you'll see the whole system calms down and things become very obvious you see very obvious how we're causing suffering for ourselves one little thing is to um, if you find yourself rushing you see to stop see acknowledge and then go back to where you were see and then start again but don't rush back see go back slowly <laughs> so you go back slowly in 10 years ago and then you'll see just that little correction just like at school that are corrections see? just that little correction re-establishes a new habit you only have to do it once or twice and you'd be surprised yeah? one of the things about coming on a retreat like this uh, or any Vipassana retreat held here is how quickly we can we can um, you know change our habits I mean, you might not normally get up at five, or definitely not half past three, or four o'clock, isn't it, here? And, <laughs> yeah, I've been soft. <laughs> and then, uh, <laughs> and not eating in the afternoon, you see. At first it might sort of feel a bit difficult, but then after that it's easy, easy peasy, you see. And sitting for so long, see. At first it's difficult, isn't it? The first day is hard, you see. Second day is worse. <laughs> third day is not much better <laughs> see and it's only by the fourth fifth day that you suddenly get you know the, the, the fruit of your practice the ease of practice and the natural calmness that comes with it but that's all it's taken just to change ourselves see? So, um, with all these mundane things especially, see, opening doors, brushing your teeth, going up and down stairs, see, don't miss any of that as opportunities to just continue this mindful investigation, see, clear comprehension, that's the Buddha's word for it, clear comprehension, and it's translated as mindfulness sometimes. So, um, that's it really, just going through those techniques, see three basic techniques noting noting intentions and going slow that's it that's the Mahasi technique and whenever you join a course and you see people walking slowly you know, like zombies then you know Ooh, this is the influence of the Mahasi <laughs> whenever you hear somebody um, suggesting you might note you see that's the influence of the Mahasi so it's just there really within all Vipassana teachers. Most of the Vipassana teachers have you know, done all sorts of uh, techniques and have found their own particular way of teaching this Satipanya, you see. I try to maintain a fairly strict line, but I don't think if my teacher were, were here he'd be happy with my approach either. Because <laughs> in the East it's sort of full on, you know, it's 18 hours, sitting, walking, sitting, walking. None of this open awareness, space out. It's just, you know, try harder. And in, and in the end, it's, it sort of works. <laughs> For some people, it didn't. Some people, it was just the wrong technique. So, um, this is, as I said at the beginning, this is just an opportunity to investigate yourself. This is for you, see? This is, this is self-caring. This is trying to do something about ourselves. With the obvious understanding that when I change, things change around me, people change. Hmm? So take this opportunity to really devote yourself to this practice. Hmm? 
I can only hope my words have been of some assistance. <laughs> May by your devoted effort, unrelenting devoted effort, achieve liberation from all suffering sooner rather than later. That's what, that's what you're supposed to say. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. I'll try again. May you be fully liberated sooner rather than later. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. That makes me feel good. <laughs> there were scriptures where the, where the monks and nuns delighted in the Buddha's words. And there were those where they were silent. See? They didn't... <laughs> they didn't they didn't respond with delight. So, <laughs> sadhu is just, a, it's just the, the way of um, expressing your delight, you see. So, if you don't say it, I think, oh, heck. So. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.